going struggling with the guy's motive in Las Vegas. But, you know, regardless of what we find, regardless of what our authorities and the experts find, uh, it doesn't stop what's happening. It doesn't stop what's happening. And actually, humanly, we cannot stop what's happening. So I want to talk about that and uh, talk about where our, where our hope comes from and how we as Christians are to respond in this context we find ourselves in the last 20 or 30 years, which I don't think is going to change whatsoever. I think it's going to get worse. And I don't think that's my personal opinion. I think I can show you that in Scripture, and we will look at that for a few minutes as well a little bit later on. But you've been hearing all sorts of theories and ideas of how and why, all sorts of people giving counsel and advice as to what's going on. But how many people actually search the Scriptures? How many people, even within Christian circles, how many people actually search the Scriptures to find out, God, what is going on? How do you label this? How do you see this? What's your perspective? What do you say? Because that's the truth. The, the Word of God, is, is, that is, that's the truth. The eternal truths of God are going to withstand all the time. And so we need to know what they are. And so as your teaching elder, it's my responsibility to feed you the truth, to, to, to lead you to the, the, to the Word of God. And uh, I, I want to begin by getting two concerns before we read just a little verse out of First Peter. But I have two concerns. Concern number one that comes out of what I've been talking about is I don't want us to get so caught up in the emotion, in the pain, that we forget what the truth is. Now, I'm not saying it's not emotional. I'm not denying the painfulness of it. That would be just heartless in me. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying in the midst of it all, we, we of all people have the truth. God has opened up our minds to the truth. He has given us the mind of Christ. He has given us the Word of God. And so, uh, what I'm afraid what I fear is that we get so caught up in the emotion, in the hype of it, and in the pain that we ignore or shy away from what the truth really is. Sometimes the truth stings, particularly when the emotions run high. And so that's one concern. Another one is I don't want us to get caught up in the ecumenicalism that is out there. Different religious leaders getting different opinions about what's going on, not just amongst different religions, but within Christianity itself. And uh, what arises from that is I believe we begin to forget our purpose as a church. Our purpose as a church. What is our purpose in the midst of all this? The question is this. Is it our job to fix the social ills of our culture? Is that it? Or is it something else? So, I don't want us to forget the truth. We need to know the truth. We need to disseminate the truth and share the truth. But on the other hand, we don't need to be cold about it. We don't need to ignore the emotion and the pain that is really involved. So I'm talking about how do you take the truths of God's word and talk to people who are in pain about it? Okay? When we get so involved with the pain, we back off the truth. But I don't want to be so much into the truth, we come across as being very unloving. Actually, what we're seeking is to be like Jesus. Amen? So I just wanted to share that with you as we begin to move forward this morning. And uh, again, the Word of God is not silent about tragedy. We do have the answers to how something like this can happen, and even why this could happen. And using the Word of God, it is, it is important for us. It's incumbent upon us to discern what is going on in this world, and to be ready to give an answer, and yet to do it with gentleness, and patience, and meekness. So let's open up your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 
1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It's just this one verse. Now, if you're, if you're, it sounds like you're already there. So I'm not here to pages turn a whole lot. But if you're, if you're not there, as you're turning there, or turning on your apps, I will acknowledge up front the context here, the situation in verse 15 is couched in is Christians suffering for doing what is right, suffering for righteousness. And in that context, we read verse 15, at the very end of verse 15, who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. That is a principle of giving an account for what's going on around us and to us. I'm taking it out of that context a little bit of, of suffering for the purpose of living a righteous life. And, 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 and I'm saying that we need to give an account of what's happening in the world around us. Does that make sense? I am acknowledging the fact that I'm going to step out of the context there, but I think there's a principle here that transcends all situations. Okay? And I'm applying this passage, this verse particularly, I should say, to our present situation. We need to be ready with an answer of why this is going on, how this is going on. Does that make sense? Let's stand together. I'm just going to read one verse. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. It's not just what we say, it's how we say it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, we thank you for this time together. God, you, you're, you're not quiet about why tragedies happen, why there are massacres. Your, your word is pretty clear and it's all over the place. So God, give me uh, clarity of thought and mind, the ability to articulate accurately the word of God, your truths, Lord God, to your people. As one who will give an account for what he says from this lectern. Yet, Father, help us not just to know the truth, but to love people with the truth, and to be gentle with the truth, and even to be respectful with the truth. Because the only reason why we know the truth is because of you. It's by your grace that we know what we know about you. It's by your grace that we have an awe and respect for the Word of God. It's by your grace that we understand it, and continue to understand it more, more deeply and profoundly. It's, it's by your grace we even desire to get into your word this morning. It's all of your grace. And we, of all people, should be the most humble in this world. Even though we have the truth. Even though we know it. We know it and have it with humble hearts. God teaches this morning. And as you're teaching us, mold and shape us further into the image of Christ. So that we would be ready and prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And all God's people say, Amen. God bless you. May be seated. Make no mistake about it. If you've been on TV at any point in time this past week, you've heard on talk shows or news programs, uh, you've, you've heard various psychologists trying to explain what's going on. You've even seen or heard from FBI profilers on TV trying to identify what kind or type of person would do this horrendous thing, which it obviously is. They even called upon religious experts or leaders and this experts from all over the different fields. And so it's incumbent upon us in this context to think very clearly 
and accurately about what God's Word has to say in the times that we live in, with what's going on. And so in order to equip you, I want to answer six questions, and here they are. Why did this happen, is number one. Then we'll go into how did this happen, number two. Where was God when this happened? Verse three. Verse four, if he was there, why did he not intervene? Question number five, what is the solution? So it does not happen again. And then number six, what should our attitude and response be as followers of Jesus Christ? I'm going to go question by question through this, okay? And the whole point this morning is we need to be equipped with the Word of God, and we need the Word of God to mold and shape our hearts so that we can go forward and have a dialogue with people, unbelievers and believers alike. And give not my opinion, not give my perspective, but give the truth. This is God's perspective. It's the only one that counts. It's the only true one. Okay? It's without error. It's infallible. And this is what we need to be sharing with people. Okay? But doing it also with the right attitude. Attitude. So we do have answers to these questions. The Word of God is, I'm saying this again, I've got to repeat myself. It's not silent about tragedies. As a matter of fact, it speaks very loudly about tragedies. It really does. Uh, I mean, to me, the, most tra- the greatest tragedy is not what happened in Las Vegas. It's not World War II. It's the cross. It's the sinful humanity crucifying a sinless Savior. But how often do we think of that as being more tragic than Las Vegas? Seriously. Okay? Putting it into perspective, biblical perspective of what's going on here. To get into the Word of God is to understand the heart of God. And the world is desperate for answers, and they're getting it from all sorts of various sources, but only the truth can come from the church of Jesus Christ. Right? Who else is not going to get the truth? Right? They don't know the truth. They haven't come to the truth. They've not come to Christ. Therefore, they don't know the truth. They don't depend on the Bible. They don't care. We have. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we have the truth, and I don't say that arrogantly or obnoxiously. I say that very humbly because, but by the grace of God, there's no lie. So first, why do tragedies happen? You ready? Here he goes. Sin. I bet you've heard that this week. You thought that, didn't you? That's a pat answer. It's true. Okay. But I want to unpack that for a few minutes. I want to unpack that. See, what do we mean by that? First, when when I say it's because of sin. I mean, there's a sin nature. There's a sin nature. That guy, you know, I'm holding off the stats, no names, but the the guy that did it and the other people involved in all these other massacres, when they do it, it's it's the reflection of what's in them, their own heart, their own flesh. It's It's the evidence of a sin nature that's very ugly. And everybody has one, by the way. Uh oh. So we need to understand that there are various degrees of sin, uh, sinful behavior that is caused by our sin nature. Okay? What do I mean by that? For example, there are people that we label really bad sinners. Then there are people that we label are not so bad. They're pretty good. Okay? The not the really bad sinners are the guys that, that do the massacres, or maybe Hitler would be a really, really bad sinner. He had a sin nature. This is what he did flowed from him. What the guy did last Saturday evening, it flowed out of him. It was his, his nature that's really hard to accept. 
But then we go over here and we look around ourselves and we see, well, the bulk of humanity isn't really that bad, right? You can always find someone worse than yourself. The problem with humanity is we compare one with another. When we read the Word of God, God says, no, 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 I'm comparing you with me. So no matter what category you fall under, the really bad center, the medium bad center, the not so bad center, how you want to label it, okay, we all fall, Romans 3.23, we all fall short of the glory of God. The not so bad center is your neighbor. That's really a good guy, he loves his family, no criminal record, no divorce, loves his children, pays his taxes, he's a good neighbor. But folks, the reality is the Bible tells us what? For all this sin, whether you sin a little or a whole lot, that we must understand. That kind of humbles us, right, as Christians when we approach this subject of such a tragedy and a massacre. How can a person do that? Simple, it's sin nature. And we're getting a picture of really how ugly and bad and intense and deep that sin nature could really be. It is God's way of showing us that our sin nature is a whole lot worse than we ever thought it was. Right? However, our society backs away from God, no longer acknowledges God's existence, and what happens when society does that is God does something to that society, he backs off. He backs off, he backs away. If you like, let's turn to Romans chapter 1 for a minute. We'll be there for a few moments. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. I don't just say that for your benefit, but mine as I'm thumbing through my Bible. Romans chapter 1. He gives them over. It happened three times in verses 24 through 28. And we've been here before the last couple of months, but this is so profound for today. It's every day, actually. Look at verse 24. Therefore, based upon what humanity has done, the rejection of God, God gives them over, gave them over. To the lust of their heart. Look at verse 26. God also gives them over to degrading passions. In other words, as a result, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgender, all that. This is all a result of unbelief. This is a result of men saying there is no God. God then backs off and says, okay, I'm going to let you live as if I don't exist. Go your way. Have at it. Right? See where it gets you. What happens is, Sinners become more sinful. That's a form of judgment of God and a society that has rejected him. Not only do they abandon his natural design, 24, 26, and even 28, since God gave them over to the prey to mind, but, but look at verse 29. Something else happens. They get filled more and more. Look at verse 29 in Romans chapter 1. After this, God gave them over in verse 24, 26, and 28, and then says in verse 29, being filled, as present tense, ongoing. There's an ongoing fillness, and he describes what they are filled with. Here's what happens. With all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy. In other words, not when God backs off, not only do they abandon what's natural, they become more filled with what? Their own sin nature to do these things in a more intense and in a more a more yeah more intense way. Does that make sense? And so they become more and more filled. That's what the present tense of the Greek. Being filled, more and more filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, 
full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. There's this laundry list of things, though it got exhausted, it's a pretty big one. And you look at this list yourself and you go, wow, I've, I've done some of this. Right? I'm guilty here in one way, shape, or form. But by the grace of God, God has not abandoned me. He, he drew me to Christ. I received Christ. I trusted Christ. I know it's His work and His righteousness. So we are close to God. Instead of being, verse 29, filled with these things, we begin to be, become unfilled with these things, so to speak. We begin to put off these things and replace them with, with, with God's righteousness and Christ's righteousness. So you see what's going on. You see how this is happening, or why this is happening, I should say. Look at verse chapter 3. Go on a little bit further. The chapter 3 is Paul sums up the depravity of man. Those verses, I think I got now 15, 16, 17, and 18. Listen to this as he summarizes everything, brings everything to a head. Their feet are swift to what? Shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Oh my goodness, 15 and 16. I mean, it's it's speaking our language where we're at right now, isn't it? This is Las Vegas. And the path of peace they will not, have not known. Now look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Beloved, I want you to know this. Listen. When you don't fear God, you don't fear hell. When you don't fear God, you do not fear punishment. You do not fear consequences. You just do whatever you want to do. Because God doesn't exist. If God doesn't exist, there is no hell. Because I can do whatever I want. I can show forth my anger and my hatred. I die and that's it. You don't even, if you don't fear God, you don't fear death. So that's why we see more and more people that way. And that's why they do what they do. It all flows from the sin nature. But that sin nature has been encouraged because they, God doesn't exist. God backs off. It just feeds the flesh. And the truth is the reality comes out of how ugly and how deep and how sinful, utterly sinful the flesh really is. Number two. And I'll be more specific here with the how did this happen. Why this happens, we understand. But how specifically, more specifically did this happen? Was it a force of darkness? Was it the devil himself? What's the guy demon possessed? Or any of these folks that do these heinous, heinous massacres and sins? Was it just the power of their flesh? Well, I, number one, I don't think it was Satan himself because he's not omnipotent. I mean, on, excuse me, he's not omnipresent like God. Okay? So I don't think he directly came down and was there. Kind of like a joke, he could have been, he could have been in the presence of God. He could have been in Bangladesh. We've got to remember the devil, Satan, is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. That is an attribute of God, not Satan. So Satan is limited. He's in one place at one time. Okay? I just want to get that out of the way. No, it was a man who did it. A man that had no fear of God, no fear of hell, no fear of punishment, no fear of death. It was a man who, according to John 8, 44, took on the characteristics of his ruler, who was Satan. Now we're going a little bit deeper here. If you'd like to write down or turn to John chapter 8, verse 44. John chapter 8, verse 44. 
the broader context is Jesus is talking primarily to the Pharisees, the Lord of verse 13, and in chapter 8, this is after the adulterous woman. And Jesus makes a comment in verse 34 that he who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave of sin. And they're like, no, we're not. We're of Abraham. You get the argument. That was offensive when he said that to them. But it's the truth. Jesus spoke the truth to them, right? Then you get a little bit further into this. You get to verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. They're saying, here are the Pharisees, religious leaders, and they're saying, God's our father. And Jesus is going, no, he ain't. No wonder they wanted to kill him. You can't get more offensive than that. If you, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, neither sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. And then he says, not only are you not, is God not your father, I'm going to tell you who your father is in verse 44. It's the devil. You are your father the devil. Which makes them the children of the devil. Which makes Jim Pippin at one time before he came to Christ a child of the devil. Right? Yes. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. We learned that we were under him. We, we learned that we we're going along that course that he has set the world, that the world is on. A course towards what? Destruction. But I want you to notice here, the children take on the characteristics of their father. Those who commit murders do it because they've taken on the characteristic of the evil one. He is a murderer. We should not be surprised whatsoever that the children of the devil or unbelievers take on that characteristic of being murdered. Right? Be not surprised. You are your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. When he murders, he murders because it's his own nature. When he lies, it's because it's his nature. And he is a liar and the father of lies. What am I saying? Well, what I think, and what I think the scripture would teach us, is that man was responsible for what he did, but he did it under the suasion of evil, the evil one. Does that make sense? But he did not have to be demon-possessed to commit such a heinous massacre. I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. There's one or two options the Bible gives us, and that's it. What we do know is, is Satan conspires with our own sin nature to do these things. Remember, look, think of the word ally. The things in common with an ally. So my own sin nature, that man's sin nature, Satan has an ally in each one of us calls the sin nature. He also has an ally, the world. And so he knows how to conspire and appeal to them to set the, the, the world on course for destruction, for murder, for lies. And the reason why he hates this creation and does that is because he hates the creator. So the Bible really is, it says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. This is how bad it is. All I know is that Satan is a murderer. So I'm not surprised that sons of disobedience, to one degree or another, take on his character. 
And hence, we have massacres, particularly in a society that has now proclaimed God does not exist. And God backs off and says, okay, here's a form of judgment. Have it your way. Have it your way. Try to live life without me. Don't acknowledge me alone. I'm going to give you over your lust, your passions, to be with you. Number three, where was God? This could be a simple one. Are you ready? God was right there. God, God is omnipresent. You know where God was on that day? The same place he was the day before. You know where God was that day? The same place he was the day after. On his throne. Think about that. Which God is. Listen to Hebrews 4.13. And there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God saw what going on. He knew that man was in that room. He knew he put all those weapons up in that hotel room. He knew what he was going to do. He knew it was on his heart and his mind. And God allowed it to happen. That's what's hard to swallow, isn't it? That's not very loving, God. How can you be a good God and allow something like that to happen? I want to park there for a second because there's another issue going on this summer, and that's a bunch of hurricanes and floods and people dying as a result, right? Okay. I wanted to inject this, okay, here to make a better place. But turn your Bibles to Job 37. There's a question we're really answering with all these tragedies. Where is God in all this? Where is God in Houston, Texas, where all these floods came and, and people drowned? Well, you know, when it came up Florida, what about Puerto Rico? And all these, what about the great earthquakes that, that happened weeks ago in Mexico and people died there? God, where are you at? This is going to come together in a little bit. Let me, let me encourage you. Job 37, verse 6 through 13. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. And to the downpour and the rain, be strong. He seals the hand of every man, that all men may know his work. Oh, wait a minute. Verse 7. Listen to this. He seals the hand of every man. Why does he do it? That all men may know his work. Then the beast goes into its lair and remains in its den, hibernate. Out of the south comes the storm. Out of the north, the cold. From the breath of God, ice is made and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture, he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning. Who does that? He disperses it. He's doing it. He is the one intimately involved in the weather. It changes direction, turning around by what? His guidance. Who's guiding the hurricanes? According to Job 37, who's going to God? You see, when we don't grasp tragedy, we try to treat God as, as a deist would. He kind of wound up the clock. The deists, they believe God exists, but the God just simply wound up the earth, turned it on, and he's totally removed from it and just lets things happen. That's deism. We are theists. We believe God is intimately involved with his creation, and he's working everything. He's involved providentially in the affairs of his creation, from the weather to sinful human beings. Verse 12, it changes direction, turned around by his guidance, that it may do whatever what? This, he commands it. He commands it. 
on the face of the inhabited earth. Now look at verse 13. God has a purpose. God has a reason. God is a God of purpose and reason. Verse 13, whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he what? Here it is. He causes it to happen. Sometimes to correct, to show his loving kindness. But God always has a purpose. But it's really hard in our culture to say that out loud in the world we live in who believes God does not exist because if you say that, you would be rebuked. You, you will be, I mean, you will just be slandered big time because what are you telling me? No, God's loving. God would never do something like that. Therefore, you don't hardly hear any Christians speak up publicly like this. There's a few. I know of a few. I've heard of a few. But not me. Because we're afraid that we will offend. And beloved, listen, listen. We live in a society today that is so sensitive and so weak. We're afraid to offend anybody. But guess what? And the, the gospel has only become more offensive in the culture that we're in. So I'm not saying get used to it. Be ready for it. I never want to get used to it, that I become allergic to it, but I want to be ready. When someone asks me about the hope that is in me, I want to be ready to give an answer. Gently and humbly give an answer. Well, let's go on. We know where God was. He was right there. He's on the throne. So if he was there, he's sovereign. Why did he let it happen? The answer to the question, if God was there and why did he let it happen, comes from understanding God's purpose in history. What is God's overall purpose in history? Is it to fix the earth? Is it to fix culture? Is it to fix the social ills of our country or any country? Is that God's purpose? No. You say, well, well, that's not God's purpose. God never called the church to fix the social ills of society. That's not what God's doing. We speak out against the social injustices. Yes. We want to influence people away from them, but we're never going to be able to fix them, and we're never called to fix them. We point them out, and we should. We're not called to fix them. No. God has ordained government to keep it in vain. Go to Romans 13, if you will. Dealing with question number four. Romans, Romans 13. He has ordained government to deter sin and evil, but not to eradicate it. The church does not exist to eradicate sin. God does not restore the earth. It's about saving a community for the kingdom of heaven. This earth will be destroyed. It's not about eradicating, getting rid of the social ills of our society. It's about God calling men and women into his kingdom, calling them into the church, creating a new people that are in love with its Savior, Jesus Christ. God is not a fixer. God is not a problem solver. God is a Savior. And we as a church sometimes get off that focus. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
He's ordained government to deter sin. Look at verses 1 through 3. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, verse 2, because of verse 1, because God establishes them, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. If you resist your government, you're opposing God. Because he has it there for a reason. Even though, and, and think about this for a minute, the government's made up of sinners, right? So that can be perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect form of government on earth. There's only one perfect form of government, and it's theocracy, where God himself rules and reigns. That's the millennium. That's the new heaven and new earth. That's the kingdom of heaven. Praise God. Right? Let's keep reading. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Verse 3, for this reason rulers are not a cause are not a cause of fear for doing for good behavior, but for evil. They don't cause you to do good. They're not there to say, come on, you can do good. They're there to deter evil. That's why there's laws. That's why there's consequences for doing this or that or the other. And so it's a deterrent. God has embraced this deterrent called the government to keep sin from being as sinful as it can be. But when the government becomes more lax, when the government becomes more full of people who say there is no God, God backs off not just the society, but the government and the laws lax, and people begin to have their own way more and more and more. Like the time of the judges, where everyone does right in their own eyes. Verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. You see that? And so, when you watch TV and you hear our government officials, and you hear the experts grapple with, why did this happen? What was this guy's motive? That, beloved, is this. That's the image of God still in man. Okay? That's been grappling with evil. I like that. I'm glad you're doing that. We want that. The problem is they're doing it in the context where they don't think God exists, at least the majority of them. And so I applaud them. I want to try to figure it out, but they're not going to, that's why nothing's been fixed. Out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, of, you know, if, if the church's purpose is to fix social ills, Jesus miserably failed. The apostles miserably failed. That's not the purpose. Now, why does God have this deterrent of government? And I believe the church, to a degree, is a deterrent as well. Okay? The Word of God is a deterrent in our lives, right? Now, I think it's for the purpose of redemption. Romans 9, 22 and 23. We turn back just a couple of chapters. That God wants to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. And that's why He's patient against the vessels of wrath. Why does God still allow these things to happen? Because God is being patient because his purpose is redemptive. His purpose is to save. His purpose is to create, a, a, to populate a new heaven and a new earth. Amen? Calling out people for himself. That is what God is doing in history. And we cannot lose that perspective. To lose that perspective is to lose all hope. God's purpose for another day let me just put it as simply as I can in my own brain. That God's purpose for another day is the salvation of another soul and the growth of his kingdom. 
simply means God's not going to save you. So what's the purpose of all this, the massacres? What, what, God could, this powerful, do something about it. So even, even earthquakes and, and hurricanes with these massacres, why, what's the purpose of all this? Here it is, folks. Are you ready? So that the people will cry out to him. So people will say, see that their own effort is vain. That's why when you get before the throne of grace, unbelievers will have no excuse. Because even nature cries out against our sinfulness and our stubbornness and our unwillingness. It's to call out to him. It's to repent. Are these not the ways in which God is working in the world to call people to repentance? To cause people to cry out to him. To call out to him. To show us our utter sinfulness means our utter weaknesses. That we can't do anything about where we're at. And also to keep us in perspective of God's eternal, ultimate purpose of salvation. That's why. That's why these things happen. It all falls under God's overall purpose of creation and history, which is redemptive. So what's the answer? What is the solution? To the world's ills, to the tragedies? What's the, what's the solution to all the injustices of this world? Is it social? Is it political? Is it, well, we, we just have more laws. That'll solve the problem. That'll, that'll make the problem go away. No, no, no. It's not even economic. For sure it's not economic. No, the Word of God never points to any one of these things that, to, for the purpose of correcting or fixing any problems. Because God is not about fixing social ills. He's not interested in solving the sin problem on earth, but he's, he loves to deliver people out of the sin problem. Big difference, isn't there? He didn't come to earth to fix it. He came to earth to deliver people out from it. Well, sort of can be summed up right there. Is therefore his purpose to the tragedies whether it's natural disasters or the heinousness of massacres. God's purpose is that of a savior, not a solver. Write that down. Put it here. Put it here. It is here. God's purpose is that of a savior, not a solver. Men, we love to solve problems. We love to solve problems. We can just fix it, but we can't. And we watch our world grappling and stretching itself and confused. Ha! We get the guy's motive. We, we need to fix this. No. We need to repent from trying to fix it. We need to turn from trying to deal with it our way and turn back to God. You see, God is not interested in solving the sin problem on earth because he's going to judge it. If God sent his son to solve the problems on earth, and to solve the earth problems, why in the world will there be a judgment on the earth? Unless God went ahead and sent his son to do that, knowing he couldn't be successful. Well, that's not right. That doesn't fit my theology whatsoever. Does it yours? No. But he didn't send him to solve problems, but to save sinners. Church never lose that focus. That's why we're here. That's why another day takes place. Because God is not done saving souls. 
So then how, what should our attitude be? Let's go all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 3 as I wrap this up. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15. We're giving a little insight in here as to how our attitude should be. We know the truth. We have the truth. We know what God is doing. We know his purpose in all things. And God is not removed but intimately involved with his creation. But what kind of attitude should we have? Look at the last part of verse 15. Yet with gentleness and reverence. As a matter of fact, I have three things. Let me get back up to the beginning of verse 15. Number one. What should be our attitude? Number one, be not surprised. Verse 14. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Don't be surprised. Troubled. That's number one. You know the truth. You have the truth. You know what God is doing. You know why God allows things to happen. He's not the one committing the massacres, but he lets it happen. To cause people to repent, to come to him, to cry out to him, to see the desperation of their own utter sinfulness. Number two, not only does he, he says, be not surprised, but number two, set apart Christ as Lord. First part of verse 15, but sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. That means venerate, adore. Venerate, adore him as number one. My greatest passion, living for him. Are you fighting for him? When you fight against your flesh, you're really fighting for Christ. When you fight the ill, the, the, the evil thoughts that come into your mind, you're really fighting for Christ. You're, you're fighting for him to be seen in and through your life because you venerate him, you adore him above all else. Third, the right attitude. So do not be surprised. Set apart Christ as Lord in your life. And number three, do it with the right attitude. I love this. With gentleness and reverence. With meekness and respect. So when you're dialoguing with an unbeliever, you do it. You do it with gentleness. You do it with meekness. Because you're not in the position you're in because of your own effort whatsoever. The only reason why you're able to understand and know and have conviction that this is the truth of God's word and this is what God is doing is because of the grace of God in your life. So therefore, when we approach unbelievers, when we're at the water fountain or in the break room at work and they're having this discussion, we with gentleness and respect speak the truth to them in love. And that's why relationships are so important. Yeah, God has called us to separate us out. And one day he's going to call us home to be with them, but still we're in the world. Not of it, but in it. We're in it and we're to be different. And one way that we're different is that we have the truth. We know what our Father in heaven, we know what King Jesus of the church is doing. We know why the clock ticks another 24 hours. And so when tragedies happen, whether it's a natural disaster or a heinous massacre, we've got the answers. And the answer is not found in society itself. It's not found in our government. It's found outside of ourselves. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. We hope not in this world, but in the world to come. And beloved, that message, I guarantee you, if the church would stand up with that message, we will begin to be persecuted in ways we never imagined before. I really wonder, one reason why we don't experience much persecution in this country is because we've shut up because we're silent about the truths of the heart of God. And he came not to fix it, but to save it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Lord God, may your word not come back to you void, but produce the godliness 
and the, the Christ likeness that you intend to work through. Prepare our hearts to be ready with an answer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.